Five. It's, uh, I'm excited to be here with you guys. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and uh, we are uh, going to be wrapping up the series on doctrine. We've been in it now for eight weeks, uh, covering some of the tenets of the faith. And so today we're going to be taking a look at resurrection. So I'm going to ask you real quick, if you would, just stand to your feet for the reading of the word. Man, it's good to be here. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're watching online, we're glad that you're tuning in uh, and being a part of service. Uh, let's go ahead and begin here. Uh, if I could get my slide, my TV down here switched over, that'd be great. All right. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Nice. <laughs> Do we have a crash? Sweet. We know that our old self, guys, give it up for production. Do y'all know how stressful that is? It is stressful. And, and just to give you an idea, like churches that run systems that try to do what we do, they spend no lie, $100,000 on a soundboard. You know what I'm saying? We spent three, okay? So we do a lot for our budget to try to, to, to offer a production value to glorify God. But sometimes things don't work exactly the way we want them to, and these guys recover quickly. So I really appreciate them. Uh, verse six, so we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be, uh, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died I, it's not, I'm not firing on my slides, just so you know, when I hit this. Okay, all right. Uh, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I wish I had all this memorized. I try really hard. Let's see. Nice. Where's my wife at? Michael, in that brown bag is my phone. I can pull my notes out of it. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, I have this up here just in case. Thank you, Michael. It's all gonna make sense in a moment, I promise. So we are going to be talking today about the resurrection. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we will not be distracted today from celebrating the resurrection. None of these things matter. None of these things matter. We know Jesus is alive and we look for Jesus's return. We celebrate today. Have your way in this place, Lord. Receive our praise and be with us. Lead and guide our steps in your mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. All right, you can be seated. I'm going to give them a moment to work on that, and I'm going to pull up my notes on here. All right, so we're going to be talking about the resurrection today. Now, 
uh, I was looking up resurrection. One of the things in this doctrine series that I've really tried to do is I've tried to, I've tried to not only kind of go through material that I think is essential to our faith, okay, uh, but I am also trying to explain to you why it is that we picked these specific topics, right? So resurrection, it is Easter, it fits really well. But there is a reason why I wanted to cover the doctrine of resurrection. And that is because there is a misconception around the resurrection. And it is a misconception that is not only, listen to me, it is not only uh, held by the world around us, but it is even a misconception that is oftentimes taught from the pulpit, from the platform. So bear with me today as we take a look at this. So Wikipedia talks about the resurrection like this, that in a number of religions, a dying and rising God is a deity which dies and resurrects. And so this idea is that there are a number of religions that, uh, there are a number of religions that view the resurrection as being a God that dies and then resurrects, comes back to life, okay? So that is fundamentally not what Christianity is about. Now, track with me for a moment. First things first, in order to understand the resurrection and why the resurrection is not about a God dying and coming back, we need to understand that Jesus was fully God, but fully man. Now, we covered this a few weeks ago. There is a link in the description. You can go back to this online later today, or if you're watching right now, it should be there already. We'll take you to the, the message on the Trinity that talks about each of the distinct persons of God, okay? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And also to understand the resurrection, not only do I need to understand this, but I need to understand who I am. I am zero God, fully man. Zero God, fully man. No God. There's no God in me. Do you understand that? Okay. All right. So what's it like to be God? Okay. I have no clue, right? I will never know what it's like to be God. I can hypothesize, I can interact with God and look at some of the attributes that I'm seeing from that engagement and I could make a really great Marvel movie about a God, right? You know what I'm saying? But, but I, I am not going to be able to adequately communicate to you what it's like to be God. Fundamental in my opinion here, and I'm laying the case for understanding the resurrection. I do not know what it is like to be God. What is it like to be man? Well, I know exactly what it's like to be man. You see, being man is about pain and fear and sorrow, right? It's about grief. It's about rejection. But it's also about love and joy. It's about empathy. It's about limitations. You see, the idea that I am a God is the oldest lie. And it has weaved its way into society and has never been pulled out. That string has never been fully pulled out. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, our bodies, they were not designed, they were not created to be vessels for a God. 
And because we have attempted to take on the responsibilities and the mindsets and make the decisions of a God, our bodies fall apart because that's sin. There is one God, right? We get to the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus and what does God say? He tells them, look, you've been living in a society where there is a God for everything, right? You're going to pray to the God of the dirt, the God of fertility, the God of, the, the, of rain, all these different gods. You're going to be praying to them and crying out to them, right? That's what you've been doing in Egypt. Now I'm bringing you over here and I'm telling you, none of them are God. And there's no God inside of you. You are not God. There is one God. There will only be one God. And because we attempt as human beings to be the mind of God instead of the hands and feet of God. And what do I mean by that? Well, we go, well, surely God couldn't mean that, right? I know God said that, but if I were God, I would do it differently. And we build entire religions. We build entire denominations around these personal ideas. And what happens is, is it is creating things that are falling apart. And more importantly, they do not declare the true nature of the resurrection. Because Jesus as fully God did not taste death. It was not the fully God, Jesus, that died on that cross. Because that wouldn't have meant anything to us. What's it like for a God to die? Well, I don't know what it's like for a God to die because I'm not a God. I don't know what that pain feels like. But the fully man that died on the cross, I get that. And you see, I think that that, that lie that was told in the garden, you see that little, that, little, that little sliver of truth that was just enough off to drag Adam and Eve out of the garden, that if we, if we can just get our hearts and minds into that, the enemy wins because then we begin to think in terms of Jesus the God died on the cross. And how do I relate with that? Well, if I were God, it would be like this and I think like that. But no, no, no. If we will accept that it was Jesus the man, we'll get it all. Like we'll get every moment of what that looked like to be wrongfully accused, to be beaten, to be forced to carry your own cross to a hill where people spit on you, the same people that were championing you. Do you understand Jesus being canceled? I mean, one week earlier, they're all wanting selfies with the man, and then now they're all wanting to curb stomp him. I mean, this is human nature. And if we will look at it from the, through the lens of humanity, right, Jesus the man, we'll go, man, he, he, he chose that? He walked that path? I don't know that I'm capable of doing that myself. I don't know that I could keep on keeping on the way that he did. You see, when it comes to Jesus the God, there's really no need for us to understand that. We don't need to comprehend how Jesus the God died on the cross. It doesn't benefit you and I, but Jesus the man dying on the cross, right? That changes everything. That changes everything. Why? Not just because we understand death, but because we long for resurrection. And if Jesus the man could die and be resurrected, then when he says that Jim the man can die and be resurrected, I go, well, if that man can experience it, then he, he must know something that I don't and I'll believe him. So what's the point? The point is, like I said a moment ago, that there is this infiltration around this idea of resurrection and, and what the world looks like. 
You see, New Age philosophy, I don't know why we call it that because it's not really New Age. It's as old as the earth is. These ideas and different religions point us to believe that we are our own God or that we can become a God. I mean, literally, you have people who are living their lives thinking, well, if I do enough good, one day I'll be a God. And instead of coming to terms with who we are and accepting how we are created and connecting with the Son of God that came and died on the cross, instead we, we make up all these like little excuses and we think like, well, I, I, you know, I'm a little bit smarter than the next guy, so I probably understand it a little bit better. And do you understand that inside of the church, that's why we end up with crazy doctrine. That's why we end up with, with pastors that will say, well, you know, I'm special, right? I'm, I'm better than the rest of the pastors. So God tells me things he doesn't tell everybody else. So this isn't biblical, but it still came from God. No, that doesn't make any sense because God's word says he doesn't operate like that. God, God, God understood that he was God and that we were never going to be God. We weren't created to be God. We were created to be human. And yet, for whatever reason, we aspire to leave this behind and have nothing to do with it. And God comes in the flesh, fully man, walks the path that we should have walked, and then bears the pain that we should have bore. And all the time we go, I, I, I'd rather have something else. And that keeps us from connecting to the cross, I believe, on its fullest level. But as a man, I can get, I get all the suffering Jesus bore. I can understand that. Now, Jesus' resurrection is known as Christus Victor, right? This is an old term that's used within the church. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection gave, made him the victor over Satan, the victor over sin, the victor over lies. But most importantly, most importantly, and the thing that the New Testament and the Old Testament consistently come back to is it made him victor over death. Death was defeated. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Note this word here, man, right? Flesh and blood, that's you and I, okay? And then look at this. He calls it the first fruits. So, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does first fruits mean? It's very simple. A beginning of sacrifice. A beginning. Now, this is, this is what I want you to get today. If you walk out of here with nothing else about the resurrection, okay, is that the resurrection is still at work, that the resurrection has only yet begun. The resurrection was not an event on Easter Sunday following Passover on a Sunday where Jesus came out of the, the grave and like, that's the resurrection. We point to the resurrection. No, the resurrection, that was the first fruit of it. You see, the doctrine of the resurrection is that something began there in that tomb that has not yet seen its end. And you and I, as followers of Christ, are living in the midst of resurrection. And that's what it means to have resurrection power in our lives. See, Jesus, the man, he played no role in the resurrection. 
Think about that. Like separate the two. That's why we say fully God, fully man, because Jesus, the man we can connect with, he died and he could do nothing about it. Think about Lazarus. Lazarus was fully man, zero God. He is dead and he is laid to the point that his body begins to have a stench on it. Jesus shows up and what happens? Lazarus doesn't just get up and walk out of there. No, the voice of Jesus, fully God, calls him forward and he comes out of that grave. And that same spirit was in the tomb that day. The same spirit was in that sealed up tomb with Roman guards on the outside to ensure that no games or gimmicks were played. The reason that Pilate had to give permission was because the Jews had their own guard, right? But they were worried that even the Jewish guards would be in on it. So they brought outsiders in and put them on the outside of this tomb to make sure that nobody was going to play any games. And inside of that tomb, a voice had to have been spoken. That same voice that spoke at the beginning of time and said, let it be. The heavens and the earth. And then the same voice that breathed life into Adam in that tomb. And breath filled his lungs. His heart began to beat once more. And blood coursed through his body. And this was the thing that just really, like I was thinking about this, meditating on this, and I just couldn't help but think about all of the individuals that were fully man, who were blind and deaf and mute, and they needed a miracle, and they came to Jesus, and Jesus was the one that was the mediator, and he prayed the prayers, and he called out that sickness, and healing came upon their bodies, and now Jesus was the one who needed his sight restored. Jesus was the one who needed to hear. Jesus was the one that needed to speak, and it all was brought back to him. Why? Because Jesus, the man that we can understand and connect with, received the same thing that we can receive. The God, what God receives and what God interacts with, like we're not capable of handling that. We can't contain what God goes through. And so Jesus, the man, comes and walks this thing out. Now, resurrection is the central tenet of Christianity and the most contested by the world. When it comes to the idea of the resurrection of a body, it is the thing that people from the outside say is not possible. And can I tell you something that people from the inside should be saying? It's not possible. That's why it's a miracle because it's not possible. You're right. Looking through the lens and the capacities and the reaches of man, you're right. I'm I'm right there with you. It's not possible except for God. And you know why? I can look at that and say that God does things different because I'm not God. His ways are not my ways. Now, I want to cross two major objections very briefly, just two. The first one is science, okay? All right? And I know as soon as I throw science up there, half of the room is like, oh, this is going to be good. And the other half of the room, you're like, dude, why are we still talking, right? Okay? So, bear with me. I was a nerd before being a nerd was hipster. 
And I never got the hipster part of it. So I just stayed in the nerd aspect of it. Like I just love to know the really intricate things. And I don't, there are people who are way smarter than me. I just want to make that very clear. If you want to talk with some really intelligent people, Jedediah right here, he can talk about math that you'll never, you'll be like laying on the floor. Where's Dave Ason? Right here, he's got a PhD in, uh, uh, what is it? In computer science, like working with artificial intelligence, like these are guys that understand things I don't understand. There's more of you. I'm not trying to dismiss any of your incredible intelligence. You are very smart, okay? So if you're sitting here going, I've got my PhD, I know. It's amazing. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) But I love to dabble, right? I like to dabble. So let's talk about science for just a moment. So the scientific method is the process of formulating a hypothesis and testing it to see if it holds up to the realities of the natural world. Okay, we learned this when we were in elementary school. This was, this is not like fourth year college level. Okay, like we learned very early on that there is a process to discovering science. Okay, now a hypothesis proven to be true is either a scientific theory or a scientific law. Now they are similar in character, but are not synonymous in their terms. Break it down, a law predicts what happens and a theory explains why, okay? So a law is predictive, a theory explains why it is happening. So let's take a look at a law and let's take a look at a theory. I promise I'm going somewhere with this, just hang in there for a moment. Newton's law of universal gravitation. So Sir Isaac Newton, 1687, a follower of Christ, I might mention, 1687, law of gravity describes the attractive forces between all forms of matter, okay? Then Einstein comes along, all right, and he comes up with the theory of general relativity. Now, Albert Einstein's theory claims that massive objects like the earth cause a distortion in space-time which is experienced as gravity, all right? Now, what you may not realize and that I learned is that these are actually a law and a theory that in some ways do not work in harmony, okay? And for a very long time, Newton's law was accepted as full stop reality. And then Einstein came along with the theory and it began to cast some some question on uh, what Newton had declared. So Newton's hypothesis in the end does not hold up because the suggested outcome does not equal the observed outcome. Einstein's hypothesis more consistently produces suggested outcomes that equal observable outcomes. I know. If you're a cat lover right now, you are freaking out. Why is he talking about this? Okay. Science accepts that its models and expectations can be wrong once observed. If you really are going to be honest about science, you are going to be honest that there are times where you are hard at work and you're thinking, I've got this thing figured out. And then some outside little bitty thing will come in and go, man, my theory was wrong. And that theory could have have been held up for a hundred years. And then all of a sudden you go, I didn't quite get that right. Why? because of observation. Observation is the key to ultimately determining how we view something through the lens of science. And the problem is there are some things that we can recreate over and over and over so that we can get an observation, but there are some things we just don't have the means to recreate. 
And so therefore, we don't get the opportunity to just set up all the instruments and observe them. You see, science cannot disprove the resurrection any more than it can prove the resurrection. I'm not saying that for somebody who is not a believer that they should not be a skeptic, but if they want to be completely honest, there is just a lot of data that they don't have to come to a completely conclusive point to say resurrection's impossible. It's not a fair statement. The second one is that called philology. Now, that is the study of the text, right, of any text. And a lot of those people will argue that the Bible is at best fan fiction, okay? So, I I don't have time to go through. We did this again a few weeks ago where we talked about the integrity of Scripture. Uh, But I want to look at Matthew chapter 28 just as a quick case study because we're in the resurrection, right? Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I, know that, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. We look at this quick glimpse of the very first people to come to the tomb and discover that Jesus is not in it. And the involvement of women as the principal witnesses in an event during this time would not have been heard. Historically, rabbis taught that a woman's testimony was only able to be considered if no males were present. And yet... They write this story from the perspective of women, and even when the men show up, they continue to tell the perspective of women. Now, for us, it's no big deal, right? Because we understand that, that what the rabbis taught was not what the Bible taught. Like we, people go, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they had like 20 wives, right? And God condemned it, right? Just because they did it doesn't mean that God was championing them, right? Okay. And treating women this way was something that the Word of God never condoned. But it was a worldview that was adopted and accepted. And historically speaking, if you were going to write a fictional tale about a resurrection, you would not want to write some things in there, right, that would ultimately discredit or discount you. So if you're attempting to deceive the world, why write the story in a way it would be rejected? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, just to undergird this one point. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now remember, we just got out of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, 
okay? So this is Paul writing a testimony, right? Giving some instruction, giving direction, answering questions, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. So he's talking about the resurrection, Jesus' interaction with some people. Who's he named so far? Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Female witnesses would not have strengthened the argument, so Paul didn't use any. He writes to them, and he doesn't mention any of the ladies. Because he knows that the audience that he's writing it to at the time, that would not have strengthened the case. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests. I'm actually, you know what, just for the sake of time, these are additional arguments. I'm going to skip through them. Uh, I'll, I'll mention this. The gospels aren't identical, right? That'll be an argument that people will make. But neither is any testimony given in any court case. And when testimonies are identical, they're thrown out. Because we understand that they're not the perspective of the individual, they are a worked out story. Hundreds see Christ risen and declare it for decades until they are all dead. Paul talks about this. He says, at the time he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, look, if you don't believe me, just go find those that are still to this day walking around going, I was there, I saw him. We have extra biblical historical texts that talk about these people who are walking around saying, not only is the story that Jesus resurrected is true, I personally interacted with him. And so the unbeliever claims that it is impossible for Christ to be resurrected, but I want to pose that the Scripture claims it is impossible for Christ to not be resurrected. You see, for as much as we want to push on whether or not the resurrection could be real or not, the Scripture is pushing back going, the resurrection is unstoppable. There was never a point at which it was not going to happen. So let's go back to Romans 6 as we wrap up here. He says in verse 9, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Full stop. It is done. The scripture says he would be resurrected. No force was going to stop that from happening. And he will never die again. And it doesn't matter. You have no authority. You can scream and yell and whine and complain about Christians till the end of time. Jesus is alive and he'll never die again. So what does the resurrection look like? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what does a glorified body look like? Well, a glorified body is one that's existing without degrading or arthritis, or diabetes, or inflammation, or suffering, or comorbidities. I mean, our bodies don't exactly work for us all the time, right? But this resurrected body 
This resurrected body does something that is different. And, and can I tell you something like, like as a kid, you know, you, you hear about that glorified body and there's not a whole lot said about it. So you kind of begin to fill in the blanks, right? So I don't know about you, but there are things that I heard as a child that filling in the blanks, I was completely wrong, right? Okay, when it talked about, uh, uh, you know, uh, being in uh, Abraham's bosom, I literally thought like we were going to be inside of this dude and everything was just going to be red and we were going to be like floating around, right? Because nobody gave any context to that. So what does this glorified body look like? Well, can I tell you that Jesus was walking around in his glorified body? I hate to disappoint you if you thought you were going to be Iron Man, but people knew who Jesus was, right? It took them a moment and they said, what? That's Jesus? And he was in his glorified body. So God created something that he was very happy with, right? We're the ones that have, that do the things that tear it apart. So our glorified bodies, I would argue, based on the fact that Jesus meets the qualifications for being in the presence of God and the body that he ascended with, that our bodies are going to probably look pretty similar to the bodies that we have now. Maybe we'll be a little bit fitter. You know what I'm saying? Some of us might have a little bit more hair, you know, longer fingernails, whatever you want. I don't know, but I'm just saying there's got to be some similarity there, right? But at the end of the day, right, in the midst of all of this, the resurrection has only yet begun. And I want you to know that, that in the midst of criticism from the outside, there are intelligent arguments to be made for why the early church exploded the way it did, why they believed that Jesus was resurrected, and why people have had an encounter with a living God throughout history, and why so many, many like you, are living their lives right now waiting for Jesus' return. So what does the, full, the, full, the fullness of resurrection look like? What does the fullness of resurrection look like? Paul goes on and, and lays that out for us here in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When does the resurrection come to its full, fullness? When do, it, is, it is here at the sounding of the trumpet. And the sounding of the trumpet, it is, a, it is symbolic of Jesus' return. When we read this in text and we read about these trumpets, then that is, that, is, that is a cue to us that something is about to happen. That when we begin to, to, to experience that, that trumpet sound, resurrection is coming to fulfillment. That which began at the, in, that, in that tomb and left it empty, that began 2,000 years ago with Jesus' resurrection, will come to fulfillment at Jesus' return when every single believer receives the new body that whether they are dead or alive. And I want to point something out here because they are talking, he's talking about the trumpet and immediately when we read this text, right, we go, oh, he's talking about the book of Revelation, except that he was writing this pre-Revelation. Or at the very best, he was writing it while John was exiled on an island. He did not have access to these writings in this moment. Think about it for a moment. When Scripture says things like this, like in the New Testament, when the, when the writers write, you know, hey, know the Word. 
You need to know, you need to study, show yourself approved. What were they talking about? They were not walking around with each other's pre-written letters like, oh, you're releasing this one next month. That's going to be really good. I'm going to go ahead and start telling people to read it, right? They were talking about the text that was already established. So for all the people who were like, oh, you know, the Old Testament, I don't have anything to do with it. Well, the New Testament says you need to have something to do with it. You need to understand it. There are there covenantal parts of it that are fulfilled? Absolutely, there are covenantal parts of it that are fulfilled, but you won't know they're fulfilled if you don't know what they are. But there are a lot of things that we don't, that have not been fulfilled yet, that we need to be aware of. You see, while the oldest prophecies have been partially fulfilled, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So, what are they? Are they being fulfilled now? Come back next week. We're going to be talking about prophecy and the fulfillment of the resurrection. Let's stand to our feet this morning. The last few years, we've seen a few things go crazy. We've seen people rioting. My phone rings. Pastor Jim, do you think this is the end? We saw COVID hit and people tucked into their homes. My phone rings. Pastor Jim, is this it? Are we at the end? And the question that you're asking when you ask the question, are we at the end, that you don't even fully understand, but you should get it in your heart as you are talking about the fulfillment of resurrection. Is this, is this the fulfillment of that which began in a tomb? And I, I'm going to tell you, just like we said in the video, I, I have no idea where we're at in the timeline, but there's hope. There's hope because resurrection isn't done yet. It's not finished. It's still got more to do. And that means that we get to be a part of what it's doing. Now, if you're in this room today and you are sitting there and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you are in this place and you are a terrible wreck, a mess, and you thought, I'm going to go to church. It's Easter and Easter's going to fix it all, right? I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm not trying to embarrass you, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond to to the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you something we don't do at City Church. We don't do altar calls up here. And, And listen, if people want to respond, we are always open to that. But I don't do that. I don't get up here and say it's because I don't want to be the thing that compels you to Jesus. Because if I'm the thing that compels you to Jesus, I understand that there is a fully God Jesus out there that does a much better job at work with the Holy Spirit at swaying and stirring your heart than I could ever do. And all I'm going to do is make a mess out of it. So all at best, I hope that I bring the word in a way that the Holy Spirit begins to bring some conviction that you begin to go, yeah, you know what? I need a little bit more of Jesus in my life. I need to change the way that I'm doing it. I want to be a part of this resurrection story. I don't want to be in the back seat. Put me on the front. Like when we go ride roller coasters, my family, we are crazy. We will wait an extra 30 minutes to be in the front of that roller coaster ride. Everybody else is just riding through the middle. Maybe that's you. No, I'm in that seat. I'm up there. I'm waiting for the front. I don't care if it takes longer because I want to, I want to be the first to experience it. And I want everyone else looking at the back of my head. I don't want to look at the back of somebody else's head. I want to be at the front. In fact, I was on a roller coaster one time in, in uh, Cedar Crossing, uh, and we got up to the very top of it, and there's this giant light mounted on it, and it's flashing. And this guy behind me taps me, and he's, it's, it's nighttime, so it's really bright. And he says, do you know why that light's there? And, you know, there's enough to, no, why? I don't know you. He said, that's so planes don't hit us. Perspective, people. Perspective. Come on. 
We get to be on the front lines of victory, victory in your life. That doesn't mean that there won't be difficult times, but you get to be on the front lines. Stop. Stop making excuses to run to the back. You've got everything you need, the full armor of God for victory in your life. And so if you want somebody to pray with you, and you want to be set free, if you want to come out of the grave that you're in before you've even hit the grave, if you want to be set free from the chains that have you bound down, I want to give you an opportunity to respond today. Our prayer team will be in the back. We will be praying. We will be there to pray with you. And we will be committed to disciple you and walk through it with you and help you to find victory because there is a better way to live. Now, if you're in here today and you are blood-bought, Jesus-loving, and you are set free, then today is your day. Go out there and let the world know He is risen and listen in the stillness of the air for He is risen indeed because there are other brothers and sisters around the world celebrating the resurrection today. He is risen. Come on, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for paying the price, coming and walking a path that was designed for us. Thank you for bearing it all and then coming back and telling us it's only just beginning. The best is yet to come. We are ready for that. Lord, use us. If you're returning in our lifetime, so be it. If you are not, use us to be a part of preparing a generation to be the loudest cry on the battlefield, crying out in your name. Let us be a part of raising up a generation, declaring the victory before it's even begun. Lord, we believe that you are soon returning, and we can't wait to see what you have in store. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for all you do, and we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Listen, I hope you'll come back next week for prophecy. Until then, go change your world. We'll see you next Sunday.